Amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 8 tonight. We are going to uh, begin our time together by reading the uh, latter part of chapter 8, and that's going to lead us into chapter 9. And we should just uh, spend one evening in chapter 9, uh, not any shorter of a chapter at all, but a, a chapter that uh, uh, it, it deals with a very deep, very, um, I, I think, important subject that uh, we don't want to get lost in the weeds of, but we do definitely want to uh, address it and hear what God has for us tonight. So, so far, Romans has been constantly building up with hype and with hope. And if you've been here for all of these studies, you know, it's from chapter one to chapter eight. It's like every week there's just this consistent ascension as Paul lays out the plan of salvation brick by brick. And we came from the gutters of condemnation in chapter one through three. Uh, then we were given the gift of justification in chapters four through seven. And then we were given the glory of unification in chapter eight, uh, how we were condemned apart from God. We were justified by Jesus and we were united with Jesus. And we've celebrated along the way. Now, from the first three chapters to the last five, uh, there's been this rush that we get when we read it. And if you've read this book before, I don't know about you, but every time I read Romans, when I get to chapter five and I just kind of continue to build to chapter six, seven, and eight, uh, there's just this excitement and there's just this draw from the Spirit of God uh, that every word compels us as we read it. And there's so much uh, help that God wants to give us and, and complete us with. Now, everything comes to a beautiful peak. If, if Romans is a, 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 an image, imagine a mountain, a, a climbing a mountain from chapter one to chapter eight. Chapter eight is the mountaintop. It is the summit. It is an exclamation point on the promise of salvation. And if you've been here the last three weeks, yes, we spent three weeks in chapter eight, we talked about those amazing promises of salvation, how we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, how we are given, uh, we are adopted as God's children. We have the eschatological hope, as in we have the hope in God's plan for all the ages. We talked about how we are elected by God as God's chosen people. And we talked about our security in God's love. And you can read through Romans chapter eight and you can uh, find out about the gift of the spirit in verse nine. You read about adoption in verse 14. You read about God's plan for the ages in verse 18 through 25. You read about our election in verse number 31. Uh, and then you read about our security in the latter part of the chapter that we're going to read to kind of set the stage. And remember what we've learned so far. Uh, listen to how Paul summarizes our salvation and kind of th this is sort of a, a celebration or it's sort of him worshiping. From verses 31 through 39, listen to him as he rejoices in the gift of salvation and kind of puts a bow on it, puts an exclamation point on it. What then shall we say to these things? And, and what else can we say but glory to God? And, and he comes to this conclusion. If God is for us, who can be against us? As in, if God has provided all of this good for us, all of this hope, all of this amazing, these amazing promises, if God is for us, not only who can stand against us, but what could possibly pull us away from these promises? Or why would we ever turn our hearts to something else as if there's better news somewhere else or in someone else. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us 
all things, and, and that all things refers to the things on the screen, the gift of the Spirit, the adoption as children, the, uh, at the hope of eternity, the election as God's chosen, the security of God's love. If God has put Jesus on the cross to give us this salvation, uh, how, how can we not receive these things and maximize our salvation in full? He says, who shall charge, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies us and we've been declared forgiven. We've been declared saved. So what could possibly cause us to back away from these promises? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, as in he is constantly advocating for us that we might receive all of what salvation promises us. And then he closes with this amazing passage, 35, 39. If you've never memorized some scripture, these are some good verses to put on your list. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So in this world, we come up against trials and distresses and persecutions and famines. And we are often found naked in peril or threatened by the sword. But in all of those things, verse 37, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. As in, even though we face these challenges and these trials from the world, we are secure in the love of Christ. And we are able to face these things as conquerors in the kingdom of God. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, referring to demons, referring to the devil himself, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for this amazing gift of salvation. Now, I, I, I got to say, it's hard to top that. It's hard to say what else you got, Paul, because, I mean, isn't there enough there to just unpack for ages? And while tonight's text and message will not be near as uh, immediately encouraging or immediately heartwarming, when we begin to unpack the technical details of chapter 9, I think it only punctuates what Paul just said, and it only emphasizes and underscores and highlights this promise of the Spirit of God, adoption as children, the hope of God's plan, election as God's chosen, and the security of God's love. It will cause us to be even more in adoration of God who is in control of all of this. Now, Paul is very technical, very specific in highlighting these specific points regarding our unification to Christ. As you can see, he goes through all of these in that chapter. Uh, these are not new ideas though. If you are a student of the Bible, they aren't only introduced to us in Romans 8, especially if you've ever read the Old Testament. These are ideas that have been present since before there was a church, before there was a Christianity, before Jesus came. These are Old Testament ideals pertaining to Israel that Paul has taken and reappropriated and reassigned to Christians. Now, as we've learned from Romans and from other parts of the New Testament, um, 
all that was real to Israel in the old covenant was just a preview of the new covenant. So when Paul begins to bring up these things that may be new to us, but for the Jewish people, these were not new ideas. These were ideas they thought were once only theirs to claim that have now been reappropriated and reassigned through Christianity, which again, shouldn't be news to us because we know the old pointed to something to come, pointed to something new and something better. Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews 8, 5. These things serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. As in Moses, your generation is not going to get the real thing. I'm gonna sh I've shown you the real thing. You and me are the only ones that know about it up on the mountain. But you can show your generation and the people of Israel a preview of what I'm going to give everybody in the whole world one day. And this is how he continues. Verse 6. But as it is, as in right now, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So again, not news to us. These things may have been old ideas, but to us, we realize they were only ever going to reach their full potential through Christ. But I, I do want to pay tribute to, and I do want to, to acknowledge the fact that those, those ideas, adoption, election, uh, the hope of God's plan, uh, the spirit of God, the glory of God, those ideas are not new ideas to Christians. These ideas, these values, these promises, they were first made to Israel. And we are going to talk about this tonight because it's important that we don't forget where we came from and what God's previous activity in the world has been. So, as far as adoption, Exodus 4 tells us this, that God sent Moses to Pharaoh and he says, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go. So the idea for Israel that they were God's adopted child. So when we read about adoption in the New Testament for the Jews, that was not a new idea because the Jews believed that Israel was God's adopted child. And now Paul is saying that we all are adopted in Christ, but that was not a new idea idea. The Jews believed that they were God's adopted children. Now the Jews also believed they exclusively could access and could, be, could experience the glory of God. Exodus 29. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And this is referring to the tabernacle. And, and all throughout the Israel, the wilderness generation, God revealed his glory to Israel. So when we talk about as Christians, we have the hope of God's glory. The Jews would say, we exclusively experience God's glory. This is not for the world. This isn't for Gentiles. It's ours. We experienced in the wilderness, in the nation, and it's ours in the future alone. So we see that the promise of adoption, that was a Jewish, that was a Jewish idea. The promise of God's glory, that was a Jewish or an Israel idea. But also the promise or, or the, 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 the idea of election, that God chose them above everyone else. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people on the earth. So again, when we read that God elected us, the Jews would say, no, 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 he elected us. We are the chosen people. We are the elect. 
It was to Israel that God made an exclusive covenant. And the anchor of that covenant was a very special and sacred kind of love. Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord of God of mercy and grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that, that, those two words, steadfast love, it's one Hebrew word that literally means that the most sacred kind of love there can be, an unconditional love. The Greeks would use the word agape, as in it's a love that is sacrificial, a love that puts someone else first. And, and for us as Christians, that's something that we believe is ours alone. But the Jews would say, no, 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 that love was ours before it was yours. And of course, the Jews had a song, one of the earliest, one of the most, uh, one of the oldest songs that uh, we still sing in some form to this day. The Jews put it the lyrics in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So I bring all this to your attention to, to make this point. All of those promises in Romans 8 find their origin in the Old Testament, specifically mentioned as Israel, uh, when they came out of bondage, they were given to get as Israel's gift. And as Israel was established as God's people, they were adopted, they were given God's spirit, they were elect, they were promised the hope of glory. They were given God's unconditional love. So what Paul does in Romans 8 is he takes all those ideas that were known about from the Old Testament and he says this, that Romans 8, that these find their full manifestation as in they were only previewed in the Old Testament. They were only previewed under the Old Covenant. They were only previewed by the ancient Jews. They find their full manifestation through Christ to believers. We are filled with the true spirit of God. We are surrounded by the glorious plan of God. We are loved by the unconditional favor of God. We are adopted. We are chosen. We are secured in God's plan. Now, it must be clearly noted that Israel wasn't merely used to paint a picture of what was to come only to be left hanging out to dry when the real thing come. Because if you've been reading along in Romans, Paul has come across a little bit condescending toward the Jews. And, and he's been referring to the law as something that no longer matter, no longer can save. And of course it can't. But if you've been reading along in Romans as a Jewish person, if you were a Jewish person, you'd be reading the book thinking, has all of a sudden God just said, hey, we're done with you? Is all of a sudden all that God did in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, is that stuff all of a sudden been invalidated or are, are these things no longer uh, to us as they are to the world? And, and I wanna make it clear, and this is what Paul's gonna do in Romans 9. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is because Paul wants to make it clear that by no means has God forgotten about Israel. And that's what the next three chapters are gonna be all about, that God by all means has still, still has a promise to Israel and still intends on keeping that promise. And we can learn a lot about how God has saved us by understanding that promise, which is hopefully what we'll get out of tonight's message. But it's clear in the New Testament that God sent Jesus to the Jews first. God sent Jesus, uh, even though they rejected him largely, the religious leaders turned away from Jesus. Jesus by no means was antagonistic towards them. He was passionate for them. He was compassionate to them. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, that I've not come to do away with the Jewish covenant. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to the Jews first so that you see what God has been building up towards this entire time. To the Gentiles, this is gonna be something brand new. But to you Jews, you should see where this was coming. You should see how God has been building towards this. And when Jesus sent the apostles out on their first mission trip, he tells them very very distinctly, do not go to the Samaritans or to the Gentiles, but only go to the Jews because this is our prior, our primary first goal. And in and, and Luke 13, Jesus weeps over the nation of Israel when he realizes, and he knew of course, but when he realizes that they were not gonna accept him as their Messiah. So there is no New Testament message that where God is antagonistic toward the Jews. No, he came first for them and he intended on honoring his promises to them. The apostle Paul persistently pursued the Jews. Uh, If you read the book of Acts, even though Paul was the Gentile apostle, he always reached out to the Jews first. It was his heartbeat. It was his passion. Uh, Every time he would go to a town in Turkey or Greece, he would go to the synagogue first. He would preach the gospel to them first. And he would show them how the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would come and enact something better than they had. For example, Acts 13. Paul says, we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us. Isn't that a perfect summary of what the bridge between old and new is? God promised it to the old and he has fulfilled it in the new by raising Jesus from the dead. This is our salvation. Paul obviously was a Jew. He was naturally sentimental towards his own people. But his passion also reflected God's promise. Remember back, and you can turn back if you'd like to, but remember back in chapter one, verse 16, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first. Remember that. He he says very clearly that this message was sent to them first and had them in mind Not that Gentiles weren't as important. God loved the world, but he had the Jews in mind first and foremost. And of course they rejected him, but that didn't mean that he still didn't send this to them and still didn't have a plan for them. You may question just how Jew focused his message was in that he was constantly, if you read Romans and you've been here, Paul is constantly taking shots at the Jewish law. He's constantly saying that this cannot save us and these Jewish traditions cannot save us. But Paul literally means no personal offense to the Jews. As much as he was trying to contrast the Gentiles, the difference between religion and Christianity, he was trying to show the Jewish readers how Christianity is the full and final version of God's promise to their fathers. This is the real and final thing. This is what we always were supposed to get a hold of. Now to many Jewish listeners though, Paul taking things that were promised to them and showing them that, saying that they were available to other people, to Gentiles, to many Jewish listeners, that was insulting, just to be honest. And and this is why Paul does what he does in Romans 9, because to many of the Jewish readers, as Paul is talking about things like our adoption and our election, as he's talking about God's glory and God's covenant of love to the Jewish readers, they thought, whoa, 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 that's ours. That's only ours. So you can't just go hand this out to everybody else. This is for us only. 
Again, as we've seen, as we know, these were things that God always desired and always intended to broaden to the rest of the world. It just took time. And, and of course, it took Jesus coming and dying for the whole world. So as we begin to read Romans 9, notice the change in tone. So Romans 8, Paul is jovial and celebratory, but listen to the first five verses and just notice how dejected and downtrodden he is as he begins this passage. And there's a reason for it and you'll understand. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. So you might would think, Paul, are we reading the same book? I mean, back in chapter eight, you were excited. You were celebrating adoption, election, glory, and love, and all these things. And now he says, I am full of sorrow and grief. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, that I would suffer for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So the reason why he goes straight to this is because Paul knows the things he's just talked about that we receive as Christians were things the Jews thought they would only have and that they thought they exclusively would have, but they didn't think they needed to go through Jesus to get, they thought they already had through the old covenant. But as we've seen, Paul says, hey, that's not how it works. It was unfulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it, but not just for you, also Gentiles. So Paul says, I'm heartbroken that the things I just promised you as Christians, the Jews thought they had these things, but yet they don't because they only get these things truly and fully through Jesus. Does that make sense? Does it make sense why Paul was all of a sudden dejected? Because the things he just rejoiced about that Gentiles are receiving, the Jews should have already had, but because they would not accept Jesus, they weren't getting what was originally given to them. So he says in verse four, who are Israelites who pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. So now you see what, why he says this. He says, I wish I could be a curse for my brethren, the Jews, because these things I just wrote to you about, adoption, the glory of God, the promise of God, the love of God, these things were to them first. Yet they did not believe. And many of them do not believe and many of them will not believe. So he's writing about past, present, and future. Of whom are the fathers, he's talking about the, the Old Testament saints, from whom according to the flesh Christ came. So God came through these people, yet they did not receive him. But pa Paul is eternally grateful for the plan that God has worked out through the Jews. Christ came through them who is overall the eternally blessed God, Amen. So let me unpack this for you if I can. We hear Paul's heartbreak for the Jews and we also see him acknowledge that these ideals that he just celebrated in chapter eight are points of sorrow for the Jews because they rejected the full and final versions of them in iterations. Now, there, there, there's no questioning. There's no questioning God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. Obviously, he was patient in the Old Testament. He came into the world as a Jewish man. He came to the Jews first. He gave a priority for the church to go to the Jews first. And as we follow Romans 9 and 10 and 11, Paul's gonna begin a very lengthy discussion. So if, if you just come tonight and not the next two weeks, you'll miss something. So be here for the next two. 
As we follow Paul to Romans 10 and 11, Paul is gonna begin a lengthy discussion about God's commitment to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel, and how in spite of their rejection of Jesus, that God is still going to be faithful to Israel because if God is going to be proven trustworthy about the promises he just made, he's gonna have to keep the promises he made all those years before. Even if the Jews rejected him, God's still gonna keep his promises to them in a very certain specific way pertaining to the fulfillment of this age. Now, if God suddenly breaks his promises to Israel, then how trustworthy are his promises to us? So if anybody ever says as a Christian, why does Israel still matter? Why is the old covenant, why is the old testament still matter? Because God made a promise to Israel. Did they keep their promise to him? No. Did they obey him? No. Did they accept Jesus as a lar- as a nation? No. But God made a promise. And if God is trustworthy in, New- in the New Testament, then it makes then, it, then it's per- pertinent that he was that he keeps his promises he made in the Old Testament. And I think that's a that's a thing that we don't think about enough. Romans 8 talks a big game, how we're adopted into God's family, how we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, how nothing can separate us from our destiny in Christ and God's love for us. Every promise that we just read about, every promise of Christianity relies on God's commitment to his previous promises to Israel. Because if God breaks those promises, how can we depend on him to keep our promises? Well, all of a sudden there's a little bit of uncertainty there. God does not break promises though. That's why it's important to still to see what God is gonna do in his commitment to Israel. Now, these promises to Israel are the backdrop of the story. Uh, this does not contradict Paul's remarks about the Jewish law. The Jews are not saved, were not saved. No one is going to be saved by the law. That's not something he's about to say. The Jewish law is unable to save people. It never saved people, yet God made a promise to Israel now, when we talk about God's promise to Israel, it, it, there, there's two different covenants in the Old Testament. There's the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, pertaining to the legal system, the law, the sacrificial system. That was replaced by the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, it's called the Old Covenant because Jesus gave us a new covenant. So when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, when Paul talks about the law, that's the Mosaic Covenant. God ended it. He replaced it. It's no longer valid. There, the, the laws are still true. The word is still true, but the covenant was replaced. We've made that clear. But there's, there's another covenant in the Old Testament. There's another promise in the Old Testament to Israel, and that's the Abrahamic covenant. You, you see, the, the old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant was a religious covenant, and that was replaced by Jesus. But the Abrahamic covenant is a relational covenant God made with the family of Abraham about how he was gonna use that family and that nation to change the world. And he was gonna be faithful to that nation and to that family in order that he might change and ultimately redeem the world. Does that make sense? This is not about God saying, okay, Jews, if you worship your, if you follow the law and you go to synagogue and you do your religious things, you're just as saved as Christians. That's not what this is saying. So make sure that's very clear that salvation is through Jesus alone. The old covenant and the Mosaic covenant, it was replaced. Nobody gets saved that way. You don't obey your way in. You don't sacrifice your way in. You get in through Jesus alone. Jew, Gentile, whoever you are. 
What Paul is saying in regards to God's faithfulness to Israel is that God made a promise to the nation of Israel, the family of Abraham, and God's gonna keep that promise. Israel is still at the center of God's plans and activity in the world to prove his trustworthiness, right? Because if God breaks his promise to Abraham that through you, the rest of the world's gonna be blessed, that I'm gonna make you a nation that is blessed above all others, that I'm gonna use your nation to redeem the world, that when every other nation is gone, you will still be there and from that nation will come the kingdom of God. God made a promise to Abraham and he's gonna keep that promise. But not only to prove his trustworthiness that he uses, uh, he, he continues to use Israel to demonstrate his enduring love for his original chosen people. You say, well, what about, what if those people don't love him? God's still faithful. God's still committed to use them, to bless them, to use that nation to, to further his redemption plan. So again, there's, there's kind of multiple layers here, but it's important that we don't pass that too quickly. Now we'll get into this in chapter 11. So a couple more weeks. But chapters nine and 10 deal with the fact that while God made a promise to the nation, God made a promise to Abraham's family, they still had to have reception individually as in terms of their relationship with God. The Jewish people still had to have faith even if they were to actually benefit from this promise, benefit from this trustworthiness. So God's gonna be faithful to Israel, but the people of Israel might not really benefit from it internally unless they trust God the same way we are to trust God. Now, look at verse six and seven, Paul says this. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He says that not everybody in Israel is really getting the blessing available to them. As in a, a Jewish person who believes in Jesus, there that's the real blessing that, 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 that can be, uh, that's unrivaled. But not everybody in Israel is really getting the full advantage of that. Verse seven, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Now he makes a very specific point here. So this is where a lot of pastors get tripped up and a lot of Christians get tripped up because we say, well, God keeps his promise to Israel, but then we try to backpedal and say, well, okay, they they aren't all saved, but God still keeps his promise to them. And we can get a little bit, you know, double-tongued if we aren't careful when we are talking about this. So Paul makes it pretty easy for us that even though many Jews failed and refused to believe in God, in, in Jesus, God's promise to Israel had not failed and would not fail. And, and, and the greatest example is Israel was wiped off the face of the earth in 70 AD and be, uh, against all odds was brought back to life in 1948. There was no Israel, there was no homeland of the Jews for nearly 2,000 years. And God brought them back into power and made them one of the most powerful, prosperous nations on the planet. Clearly we are at the, near the end of God's activity in the world that he brought them back. And that's again, a sign of his commitment to the Jewish, to the Israel, to the nation of Israel. But... There was never a promise to every Jew. There was never a promise that every Jew would be saved. That Jews aren't saved just because of their heritage or because of their ethnicity. Nobody gets saved that way. There was never a promise that every Jew would be saved. Because from the initial promise to Abraham, there was always a narrowing of the scope. Because when God picked Abraham, he then picked Isaac. And then when God picked Isaac, he then picked Jacob. As in not all the people in the family We're gonna get it by default that God made a choice. And this is important for us to get a hold of. Verse eight through 13. 
That is, those who are called children of the flesh, they're not all children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls." It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. Now, here's why we're here tonight. Because we find out something about the nature of our salvation in Paul's explanation about God's faithfulness to the Jews, yet his explanation about how all the Jews are not saved by default. There's something here that is explained and on display about salvation. This is reflected in God's choice of Abraham in the first place and his subsequent choices from there. And the key word, it's choice. God's choice is the catalyst of every salvation. Why did Abraham get in? God chose him. Why did Isaac get in? God chose him. Why did Jacob get in? God chose him. Why do any of us get in? God makes a choice. And this is what Paul wants us to get a hold of tonight, that God is the one who makes the choice for us. Salvation is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's not just something naturally that happens because God opened the door and said, hey, maybe you'll get in. Salvation is the direct result of God's sovereign choice. And this is so good. I hope we can get a hold of this. I hope, I hope and pray we can get our arms around this. It's gonna be a little bit deep, but I promise you there's something here for us that's overwhelming and amazing think about it God did not make an announcement back in Genesis 10 and say okay I need somebody to come be my chosen servant I need somebody to be uh, the vessel that I can change the world through no what do you read about in Genesis 12 that God picked Abraham out of all the millions of people not because Abraham proved himself worthy God just chose Abraham and then you read about in the very next passage, the very next story, that God, when he had Isaac and Ishmael to look at the, between Abraham, God didn't say, okay, let's see who can run the fastest. Let's see who can work the hardest. God chose Isaac. And then when the same thing happened with Jacob and Esau, as competitive as they were over the blessing on the table, God chose Jacob. So what's the common thing that we see in those stories? Next slide, please. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. Did they choose God? No. Did they earn their way? No. God chose them. So with this in mind, it's easy to see salvation as the dish that God puts on the table and he says, okay, just come and get it. Yet, yes, God has set the table. Yes, God is a God who accepts and welcomes. But the message Jesus hit on again and again is yes, the table has been prepared, but you have to be invited. And again, don't get a little, don't get angry at me just yet. Because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not at all promoting that we have an attitude of arrogance. Oh, we're in, so hey, we're better than somebody else. That is not the message at all. The emphasis is that we respect the sovereignty of God, that salvation is a sovereign choice. If God was sovereign over choosing Israel as the vessel that he would change the world through, there is no doubt that any of us 
get saved by the choice of God alone. That's the logical through line that this discussion that Paul's introduced us leads to. And Paul leans in on this to teach us about God, about God's sovereignty and about the nature of salvation. And here's what he wants us to know. Without God as the primary and the first and selective mover, there is no relationship with people in God. Am I saying you don't have a dog in the fight? No, come back next week. But without God as the first and primary and selective mover, there is no chance that any of us get in a relationship with him. Jesus told this parable about a king who had a banquet for his son. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. He invited people, but they would not come. And the story goes that he went and invited more people and compelled people. And some did come and they filled the house. But then Jesus ends the whole parable with this very uh, controversial statement. Many are called, but few are chosen. I mean, shouldn't the verbiage be few choose? And he says, no, no, no because you don't understand that God is the one that is sovereign in this. God does not leave salvation up to mere chance. Whoever God chooses, he saves. As in God does not miss. Isn't that good news? God doesn't miss when he aims at something. And when God chooses to save you, he is successful. Now, somebody should shout tonight because that is the ultimate good news. That Jesus took names to the cross. His death doesn't allow for salvation to happen. Potentially, his death accomplishes salvation for those that God chooses. Romans 9 is is an invitation for us to look down to earth from God's perspective. Listen, you will never comprehend God's heart. You will never understand how God sees things and how God understands things. But you can take solace in this. God is not in heaven hoping and wishing for us to believe. He is sovereignly willing and accomplishing his will on earth. And that includes, maybe more than anything, that includes our salvation. I want you to focus on something for just a minute before we wrap up. Verse 13, Paul quotes Malachi where God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And the word hate can also mean rejected, but either way, that's not a good word. or We don't think that's a good word. Then temptation is to get caught up in the last part. How could God reject someone? How could God not save, choose to not save someone? But, but let me direct you in a different direction if I can. Because the real question should not be, how could God reject Esau? How could God hate Esau? The real question is, how could God love someone like Jacob? How could God choose someone, choose to save someone like Jacob? He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. He was a con man. He schemed to steal his brother's birthright. And even if he got away with it, and after God told him, hey, I'm the one that's doing all this, not you, He still goes on for 20 years and doesn't pray, doesn't devote himself to God, selfishly chases his own dreams, looks out for himself and puts everyone around him at risk. 
Our response to this should not be some sanctimonious shock that God might reject somebody. And it should not be arrogance that we might have been chosen. It should be humility and adoration that God would choose someone like us. Because if indeed God has made a sovereign choice to save sinners like us, what boast do we have at all? There is none, is there? Listen to how Paul sums this up, verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for... For of Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And I say this delicately and with the utmost reverence to God, because he's the one doing all this. The default status of any of us is condemnation. It is the mercy of God that allows any of us to get in. It is the mercy of God that chose Abraham. He was an adulterer. He was a liar. It's the mercy of God that chose Isaac. He was a coward. He was scared. It's the mercy of God that chose Jacob. He was more crooked than Esau ever was. It's the mercy of God that melts our hearts and compels us to come. The point is that we might know with certainty that nobody comes to God unless God chooses them unless God has mercy on them. You say, well, isn't the cross God's mercy to everybody? It is, absolutely it is. But individually, you and I are at the mercy of God to melting our hearts. You, you see, and, and I promise you, come back next week, you're gonna think, well, man, that's the exact opposite message. Because chapter 10 is all about free will. It's all about whosoever will, whosoever will. And you're gonna think, well, that's weird because chapter nine was all about God, God, God's mercy, God's choice. But you see, it's two sides of the same coin. And Paul makes it very clear that if we are going to get near God, it's the mercy of God that melts our hearts. Verse 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for whom, for who has resisted his will? But indeed, old man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to who formed it, why have you made me like this? So you see how Paul is trying to get us to see God as the sovereign creator that he is. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor, one vessel for dishonor? What if God, wanting to, show mercy, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God's entire motivation in dealing with the world is that there might be contrast between our wickedness and our natural rebellion and his grace and his supernatural mercy on us and choosing us. Salvation is more than anything. Salvation is to prove that there is no hope for any of us apart from God's choice. Israel is proof that the world would have no chance if not for God choosing a single nation to bear his promise and reflect his power. His commitment to Israel, even though they rejected him, even though they're not better than anyone else, 
proves that we all persist in spite of ourselves. Think about the concepts that we talked about in chapter eight. Adoption, election, God's glory, God's love. All of these shine a light on God's choice, God's mercy, God's saving power. And may it be known, this world is on a blank slate where we all have an equal chance to get to certain places on our own. All of us are equally condemned in our flesh and in sin. And the only hope for us is for God's mercy to find us and raise us up. Do we play a role? Yes, but we would never have a chance to take a single step if not for God pulling the curtain back and giving us the opportunity. Now in verse 25 and 26, he quotes Hosea the prophet and he says, I will call them that are not my people, my people. I will call them beloved that were not beloved. I will call them my people. I will call those who are not my people, the children of God. We are only God's people because God made a choice for us. Why does Israel still exist and have a purpose in the world? Not because they pursued God in spite of that. And it reminds us of why any of us have a chance at redemption. God, God, God goes on to say that Israel will remain a key player in the days to come and the redemption of the world to continue to highlight his sovereign choice. Verse 27, Isaiah, the prophets quoted, though the number of the children of Israel be as sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved for he will finish the work and cut short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. So he makes it clear that God's commitment to Israel is still in play, if only to prove that it's God who shows mercy. These that are not seeking God are being used by God to highlight his sovereignty. And think about this, who among us are truly seeking the Lord? Verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. We didn't get here because we pursued God. We were going the opposite direction. The fact that any of us are saved is proof that God made a choice. We would never have gotten the chance to choose him if he did not first choose us. He chose us in his mercy. Because of his mercy alone, we are saved. So what is this message about? It's about bringing us to our knees before God and giving him the adoration he's worthy of because we don't realize how dependent we are on the mercy of God to save us. Hosea the prophet, God called him to love a woman who had previously been a prostitute. We don't know if he knew that advance or not, but he got involved with this woman and he had multiple children with this woman. And then as time went on, she decided that she wanted to go back into prostitution. Well, the story goes that after years of looking for her and praying for her, Hosea finally realized that she did not want him she did not love him. And then God comes to Hosea a few years later and he says, Hosea, I found your wife. She's in a brothel in the darkest, most corrupt part of town. I want you to go and get her. You see, 
Nobody wants her anymore. Nobody's looking for her anymore. She is now just allowed to live out her days in this brothel because they don't know what else to do with her. Believe me, she's not looking for you, but I want you to go look for her. But I don't, I don't just want you to go look for her. I want you to love her. I want you to love her like I've loved you and the nation of Israel, even though you've turned away from me. And the story goes that Hosea, maybe if we don't know how long he waited, how long he thought about it, but Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, which is pocket change. They weren't asking much. He bought her and he loved her. We don't ever know if she loved him back, but he never stopped loving her and being her husband. Hosea loved a woman that didn't want anything to do with him. And yet it was because of his persistent love that the woman became his wife. He chose her, she did not choose him. And it was his choice that redeemed her. That's what salvation's all about. God has made a crazy lopsided choice and somehow, someway we came out saved. Isn't that an amazing, empowering reminder of the gospel? God has chosen, elected us. He didn't just leave the door open. Maybe when you were, your kids were younger, you told them, I'll leave the door unlocked for you. He didn't just leave the door unlocked. He came outside and found us. And we weren't in a good place. And we weren't coming home. We were going the opposite direction. Yet God in his mercy finds us and says, I choose you. You're mine. Thanks be to God for this remarkable gift. Do we have a role to play? Yes, we do. We'll get to that next week. But we don't need to focus on what we have done until we just stop in our tracks and say, God, thank you for what you have done. Because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your mercy. It seems so small a thing to say thank you because you deserve more than that. Lord, thank you that you've committed to keeping your promises and the nation of Israel and your persistence to her and your commitment to her, that's proof. But all of us can feel that same commitment because we wouldn't be here if you didn't go to the very uttermost part of the earth and find us and buy us. We didn't ask for this. We didn't come for you. We didn't look for you. You found us. And it's your mercy that saved us. God, would we pause tonight and just give you praise and glory? Would we fall on our face before you tonight and say, thank you, Lord, for saving someone like me? Thank you, Lord, for not just, choose, not just inviting me and not just calling me, but you chose me and you chose me in such a way that I didn't have a choice. You chose me and it wasn't 
a hopeful, it wasn't a wishful choice. It was an effective saving choice. Lord, thank you that this not, it's not up to me. It's up to you. And we can put our faith in you and have confidence in your ability to keep us until the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.